Welcome to the London Lyceum, where we try to encourage listeners, especially our Baptist listeners, to think deeply and clearly. Think about their faith, think about their church, think about their life, and think about God. We're analytic, Baptist, and confessional. Thanks for tuning in, and enjoy the episode. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the London Lyceum, or the LNL podcast. Rolls off the tongue so smooth. And I'm back in the studio with my co-host, Brandon Askew. I'm Jordan Stefaniak, and we have a special guest today. Yeah, we're here with uh, Jake Stone. So just a little bit of background about Jake and uh, how how I got to know Jake, and it's, it's similar to how uh, Jordan got to know Jake as well. So we met him initially through uh, Twitter. Um, this was probably two or three years ago. and The great networker of all 1689 buddies. That's right, yeah. Well, it gets us in trouble too, so... <laughs> Um, so, and I first met Jake in person at the G3 conference back in January of this year. And then as he was traveling up to the, the banner of truth conference in May, he crashed at uh, my house with my family. So we got to spend, uh, an evening together going, uh, going to dinner and chatting about Baptist history and all kinds of things. So that was a good night, uh, to get to know Jake. So, um, we're happy to have you here with us, man. Well, I appreciate y'all letting me come on and be a part of the takeover movement at 1689, guys. So. That's right, man. Hostile takeover. Um, that's right. So, For any listener who has no idea what that is, that's just an inside joke. We're not actually taking over anything. We're being kind and compassionate and convictional. That's right. And charitable. Don't that's right. Don't forget the other that, so, yeah. That's exactly right. So... We're having you on. Um, for our listeners who have no idea who you are, why don't you just give us a brief introduction uh, about, you know, maybe uh, the fact that you're a pastor, where you're a pastor at, um, and just a little bit of information so they can have kind of some context uh, from what you're telling us today. Be glad to. Yes, I pastor New Testament Baptist Church in Biloxi, Mississippi. That is on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I've actually been in pastoral ministry now for 10 years, and New Testament Baptist is the church that I grew up in. Uh, My parents were charter members of the church when it organized in the mid-1990s, and actually this month, August, uh, marks eight years uh, since we began essentially what was a relaunch, a revitalization, and reformation of the church. So it has definitely been a roller coaster, lots of highs and some lows, but it has been worth it. And I'm very grateful to not only serve there, but to be a member of that communion of saints. Amen, man. That's good. So, um, so you, you mentioned that you've been the pastor there for um, going on a decade now, and you're about eight years in a reformation effort. So tell us a little bit about what the church was like Um as you were growing up there. Um, so I know that it was more of an independent fundamentalist Baptist, um, King James only, uh, kind of church. So walk us through that journey. You can give it to us from a strictly personal perspective, or maybe from, um, I know your family is also very involved in the church. So if you want to talk about them, um, that would be great, but just, just kind of tell us what it was like to move from an independent Baptist to now a confessional Baptist. Well, yes, my, my mom and dad were, mem- were members, were charter members when the church organized in, in 1994. So I, I'm, I'm 30 years old and I was five at the time. So basically what I grew up in was those things. It also had what we would call landmarkism. Um, 
in Baptist life as a part as well of the, the theological makeup and, and very much a, a, you know, legalistic fundamentalist. And, and I would even say uh, some somewhat even cultish at times uh, background. We were a part of a, of an association of churches just in this, you know, our area here of, of like-minded churches. And, and we tended to stay, you know, very much uh, inward. Uh, I've kind of looking back, I would say there was almost, even though there was a rejection of, you know, the doctrines of grace and Calvinism in, in that world, um, at least what I would call a mentality of hyper-Calvinism as far as we were the ones uh, did exist. I mean, for example, I, I grew up understanding that, you know, the Southern Baptists were a very liberal uh, group. Um, and they were talking about, you know, post-conservative resurgence, although these days there's many people who tend to think the SBC is liberal. Um, we won't get into that. I'm not one of those, but, you know, uh, some do. But so that was kind of the mindset. I mean, we were the ones. I mean, we were going to be in the bride of Christ. You know, there were to be other believers, but they wouldn't be in the bride, um, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, and so it was very very much, uh, you know, that the way was narrow, but not in a biblical sense. And so I grew up in that world and we were always a small church. Um, I mean, usually between 15 and 25 when the church was organized besides my mom and dad and my grandfather, when he was alive, everybody else in the church, they were all related in some way. So very much was like a family chapel. And from 1994 to 2009, uh, we had eight different pastoral stints. Um, it was, you know, most of those men were a year and a half to two years max. Uh, and it was just a revolving door. I, I look back now and probably they, they really did preach everything that they knew, all that they had, and, and then left. And it was just very much, I mean, there was no sermon prep. There was no studying. There was certainly was no commentaries. Those things have been seen as being from the devil. Um, <laughs> you know, it was controversial about whether you even use notes or not for a sermon. So it was just really just a lot of strange beliefs, too. I won't go into all that. But I was converted uh, when I was 16. But really, there was not a lot of growth. I, I was, grew up in a, in a good home, a Christian home. I mean, I'm thankful my, my dad led us in, in devotional time every day. Uh, he read the scriptures with us and prayed as a family. Now, you know, growing up, I didn't always like that, especially if I was, you know, busy watching something or doing something that I had to quit and quit that and go for devotional time. But, but that was definitely, it was not something we just did on Sunday. It was all the time. And I appreciated my dad's testimony he was not converted till he was 31. He was an alcoholic and into drugs and you name it, he did it. And God was very gracious, but he was converted in one of these kinds of churches. And that's all that he knew. And that's all that I knew. Uh, I was always somebody who loved history. Even, you know, going back to elementary school, I've always been a nerd in that respect. Um, but I, even though I was indoctrinated with understanding the, the landmark perspective of Baptist history that, you know, we were not Protestants. Mm -hmm. that we went all the way back to the seashores of Galilee or to John the Baptist. Um, Trail of Blood, if anybody doesn't know what that is, just Google it and you'll find it. And that was what I grew up in as far as history was concerned. So definitely, you know, very, very indoctrinated in this. So you, you mentioned that there was kind of a cultish mindset. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm interested to hear 
what was the biggest because with, with a, a cultish mindset you know the something that comes with that is just uh unwillingness to to change anything so um what was the biggest obstacle during this reformation was it moving away from king james only was it um changing your understanding of history to move away from the landmarkism to a more uh actually historical <laughs> view of history like what was the biggest obstacle for you personally to overcome and for you to, to actually get the people in the church to change from one one place to another i would definitely say the king james onlyism was the biggest the biggest hurdle and the biggest obstacle um so i i i was licensed by new testament baptist to preach in february of 2009 um by that time, all that was still there at the church were my parents and myself, and we had an interim pastor. And three months into my license, I was called to pastor another similar church about 30 minutes from here. So I was 19, three months of preaching experience, and I use the term preaching very loosely. And I began pastoring this other church about 30 minutes away, and I also began serving at New Testament on an interim basis, which was a common practice in what I grew up in for a man to pastor, and I use that term loosely as well, uh, two different churches. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. I preached a grand total of four times on Sundays, once on a Tuesday night, once on a Wednesday night. But I, I caution to say these were not, you know, deep expositions of scripture by any means. So um, a, a lot of it was just kind of winging it. So I, I went two years and preached to my mom and dad most every week, three times a week, which is, you know, quite interesting. And you mean literally and, it was, it was just your mom and dad and you. Yes. Yeah. Literally the church wow. that I pastored today, when I, if you, you know, New Testament Baptist church, there was a time where there were, were many Sundays where there were just two vehicles in the parking lot, my dad's truck and my truck. And, <laughs> and we three were, were there for service. And it was kind of to keep the lights on, to be honest. Right. Um, you know, we, we believe God had something to do. For, with something for us to do um just you know didn't exactly know what that was going to look like now i do sitting here you know all these years later but not at that time so it was also during my first year in the pastorate that i really got even more connected with the independent fundamentalist camp meeting world um, i have preached a night of a tent revival and i praise god that that was not recorded um, <laughs> because uh I, I regret much but i'll but i'll tell you what that night when I did that, when I got down, I knew that I was trying to be somebody I wasn't. And that bothered me. It really, really bothered my conscience. And so after I had been a, serving as a year as a pastor, the other church that I was at, a gentleman visited one Sunday whose grandfather had been a pastor there before. And he was pastoring in Montgomery, Alabama. He visited and he asked me before service, did I do ex expositional preaching? And I said, I don't, I've never heard that term before. I don't know what that is. So he started explaining it. He gave me some book recommendations and some men that I should listen to. John MacArthur, W.A. Criswell, Adrian Rogers, and Jerry Vines were all names that he mentioned to me. And, um, and that was the beginning of, of, of the path, really. Uh, when I started listening to some expository preaching, I, I was just greatly amazed at how deeper and richer it was than the stuff I'd heard. 
So this was 2010. And in the fall of 2010, I decided with my mom and dad that I was going to preach through a book of the Bible. So they were the first two people to ever get to experience that. And I chose Joshua, which I recommend nobody ever do for your first book, <laughs> especially if you want to do it and you have no commentaries, no guides and no helps, which I didn't have at the beginning. Uh, they, uh, they persevered through much tribulation, I would say, <laughs> through me preaching through Joshua, especially the division of the land. But it was really just starting to a lot of things, you know, the more that I started digging and looking around, I came across things, for example, like the Jacksonville Pastors Conference. And I still remember vividly listening to Al Mohler preach a sermon on Isaiah 44 on the folly of idolatry. And just being so amazed at how solid this preaching was, but yet very conflicted because he was not using the King James. And I was really struggling with how do I reconcile that? Um, you know, I mean, how do I connect good preaching, but he's not using the Bible as I was taught and, and defined that. It was also during this time that through uh, Facebook, I was in a Baptist pastors group and this subject came up one time by a pastor in Arkansas and he and I started chatting and he sent me a list of a hundred questions of his objections to King James onlyism, And he said, if you can answer these, uh, I will, I'll, I'll agree with you on your position. So I said, send them. And as I started reading these questions and some of them were historical uh, questions and I looked it up and saw it was, you know, it was not fake history. It was true history. I, I answered those questions and that greatly troubled me. So I reached out to two men that I considered mentors uh, at the time for their help. And both of them gave me the same answer. It was the devil trying to confuse me and I just needed to ignore those questions. Uh, and I couldn't do that. I, I didn't think it was the devil trying to confuse me. So I moved from King James only to King James preferred. And just that kind of switch to, to my using the term cultish, just a little bit of that modification, my then best friend took me out of his wedding mm. for that. Wow. Um, because he was the person I kind of shared this news with, thinking he might be somewhat receptive, and I was proven wrong. Um, and basically, in a six-month period of time, most all of my friendships and relationships that I had in ministry, people that I'd known my whole life for, was over. And I was not preaching from anything else but the King James and was still telling people I thought that was the best translation to use. I just didn't think I could go that far anymore and say anybody that was using something else was using something from the devil. Hmm. So fast forward to August of 11, I stepped down from the other church. Um, the, the honeymoon period had ended. Um, I had tried to make some changes there and learned uh, that I had been a little bit foolish to think that, you know, I was 21, 22, everybody liked me, and that I could charm people enough to make some changes, and uh, that kind of blew up in my face, so to speak. So I learned that lesson the hard way and knew that it was time for me to, you know, leave after two years, and so I stepped down to come to New Testament, believing that God had something for us there to do. And August the 7th, 2011, that first Sunday rolled around, and guess who was there? me, mom, and dad. And mm. I can remember 
driving home that evening saying, I must be insane. I must be. Um, this, this just, nothing's going to happen here. Well, in that first month, uh, there had been a couple of families that had started attending the church that I had been at. And by that time, I had started preaching through John there, uh, although I, I did not preach chapters like John 6 very faithfully looking back. I don't remember <laughs> how exactly I explained away election and all of that, but I did. Um, but they did like th that I was teaching the Bible, and it was a, a mother and her daughter and their families. And I cautioned them not to have preacher religion and just follow me, but that they were committed to New Testament Baptist Church. So they prayed about it for a month. In the end of August of 11, they, that, those two dear ladies joined with us. And so we five became the kind of the core foundation of New Testament Baptist. Uh, after that, and kind of getting away from that world, um, about two years later, uh, I thought it was time for us to switch from the King James. I became convinced that translations like the New American Standard and the ESV and so forth were good. Were solid, and for our context, I was, you know, the more I was growing in expository preaching, uh, the more that I just felt like having to work through uh, the older English all the time was just taking up too much time. So I decided that we needed to go to the ESV. So what I decided to do to kind of introduce the congregation to this was uh, using other cross references in my sermon. So I was preaching through James at that time. But when I would cite another passage, I would say, now, this is, you know, First Peter 2, 5, but I'm using the New American Standard because I think that it uh, words it better, just to kind of get them familiar with something else. And I had no, no pushback or anything like that. And then I decided, and I, I kind of say this tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but if you want to really try something new and be brave, do it on a Wednesday night. That's a little <laughs> bit safer. Um, and so I decided one Wednesday night for my lesson, I was just going to read and do it from the ESV that evening. And I did. And as I read my text, um, I looked up and everybody seemed cool and no issues. And I made my way all the way to my left. And, and I saw that look and I saw that face and I knew that look and I knew that face because I'd seen it a few times growing up and it was my dad. And it was that look of, that he was upset and he was not listening anymore to what I had to say. And we didn't talk for two days. Wow. And finally uh, we sat down and I said, are you ready to talk about this? And his first statement was, I'm not buying an ESB. And I said, well, you don't have to, if you want to still use the King James, that's fine. And we talked for two hours and I know it was hard. It's all that he'd ever heard. That's what he'd heard for over 20 years. And uh, I was asking, and, 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 I, and the reason I said earlier about it being very cultish is because it is a control factor. You know, especially in, in our context in the rural South where a lot of people don't have much in the way of education. They're not really wealthy, but we've got the right Bible. We have the right Bible. And that's very powerful. Very mm -hmm. powerful. And I do believe that there were men in that group and still to this day who were smarter and knew better, but it was a way to control the masses, so to speak. And, um, and it was a good ameter. You know, I mean, if you were really struggling up there, nobody was really into what you were saying. You just went on a tangent about the King James and you had everybody awake and, and ready to go fight with you. 
I know I, I did that a few times, um, unfortunately. So uh, I knew that was hard. But we talked, we prayed, and the next week I bought him and my mama an ESV. And that's what he's been using ever since. And um, I'll, I'll tell, tell people that I, there's not many men that I know who could submit to their son as their shepherd and pastor in such a way like that mm. and follow their lead. I don't know very many that, men who would do truth. that. Um, and so, but it was hard. Um, my, besides my parents, the rest of my extended family, um, most of them no longer see me as a legitimate preacher because of this issue. Uh, and many of them live right around the area where I serve at and have not heard me preach a, a sermon in person in years uh, because of this. Uh, but I would say that that was really the breakthrough moment for us as a church, for me, myself personally. And it all went back to expository preaching. Understanding what is biblical preaching, what is exposition, really became the way that we moved from that issue. Not easy, um, but, but, but God was very gracious and blessed us. Well, yeah, that, that's really amazing and testament to God's grace and all those things. And I'm, I mean, there's so many things in your testimony that I'm curious to ask. Um, but one thing that I think seems to not just be localized in the independent fundamental Baptist uh, section, but in other religious groups especially is this um, negative attitude toward learning, at least in the United States, where any external opposition or thoughts are somehow cast in, like, as you said, some sort of demonic attack. And it almost uh, crushes any ability to think uh, deeply and clearly. And that's one of the things that me and Brandon wanted to do with this podcast was to help, especially Baptists, to think deeper and more clearly about their faith. So one thing I'm interested in is in your own context, when it came to just learning in general, what was the over overall attitude towards uh, just learning and thinking about the faith, uh, particularly just within your own tradition or outside your tradition? I know you mentioned some of the Southern Baptist stuff or even just outside of Christianity in general. Was, was there anything to be known from the atheistic scientist or was that completely off the table and was other groups completely off the table? Le learning was liberalism, if I can put it that kind of blunt. Um, I mean, that was very much how it was viewed. We had our own uh, now, here's what's interesting, and this might kind of surprise you or surprise those who are listening. There wasn't, though, a really what I would call any kind of like, and, and I'm not against homeschooling. Most of the families in that New Testament now do homeschool. But even in our context, though, that was not a really a, a big thing. So we all went to, I mean, I went to public high school um, here. I went to Gulfport High, which in, for us in Mississippi was one of the larger high schools in the state. But I can tell you that I always felt I was the only true Baptist there. So I didn't participate in any kind of, you know, Christian groups there because, you know, they were liberal and, you know, the Southern Baptist people that ran this, a lot of the stuff. I mean, they couldn't be trusted from, from my perspective. Um, so there was that mentality. I mean, we were alone. We had our own Sunday school literature. Um, you know, I could do a whole podcast episode about some of the interesting things that were said in that stuff. Um, but 
it, it was very much, and here's kind of a funny side note here. The first time I ever heard about Calvinism was in connection with the, the dead Southern Baptist seminaries. Chiefly, New Orleans um, was considered in our world the, the great uh, promoters of Calvinism in the SBC. Of course, as I got into the SBC life, I learned a lot of people were misinformed, obviously, and <laughs> what I grew up in, um, they were anything but promoting uh, Calvinism. But, but that was kind of how it was generally. Now, they wouldn't have an issue with somebody going and be, going to a university to become an engineer or something like that. Um, but you were always expected to come back. Um, I, I tell people all the time, there's a lot of people in that world that I grew up in who would be much more satisfied with me being somebody who was sitting at home uh, drinking and maybe going to church two Sundays a, a month than in one of their churches than for me to be pastoring New Testament Baptists outside of that tradition and the Lord blessing us. Um, it's really that mindset. Once, once you, if you're somebody who left from it, you really are marked as a leper. Um, and so, and it's because, because of that, just that mindset, you, you've given in and you've caved in to uh, all of this quote unquote liberalism. I can remember when I took a religion class at Southern Miss having a United Church of Christ pastor teach that class. And as I sat in there, I was like, this is actually a liberal theologically, you know, not what everybody, how that term was used for just anybody that wasn't like us. But I would say overall, I mean, learning was just in many ways. I mean, you didn't go to, there was no seminary or college for, for, for training for a pastor. And like I said, very few people use books to help in quote unquote sermon prep. And if they did, they kept it quiet. And there were a lot of people, and I knew the certain churches that I went to, I could, I could never let them see that I might have an index card up there with a few notes because that revealed that you were not depending on the Spirit mm. to guide you. So one quick little side note. I can't tell you how many times growing up and then when I started pastoring in that tradition that the prayers that would be prayed on Sunday morning would go something like this. Lord, if you've not settled our pastor's heart on what he's supposed to preach, do it now. Most of the time, you didn't really know what you were going to preach until you walked up there, opened your Bible and kind of a, you know, page turned to this and you read that verse. And then you talked about anything else under the sun that had nothing to do with that verse. It was just kind of your, I tell people the Bible was a prop. That's what that was really. So, you know, what you're describing seems to be, you know, really kind of um, focused on emotions and, and very emotional. And, you know, I guess they would have called it spirit driven, but um, very little, it sounds like was, was done in the way of, um, I guess, strong intellectual habits. So as you moved from that tradition to, to, to where you are now, give us like one or two intellectual habits that you've um, that you've started, you know, to incorporate maybe in your sermon prep or just in life in general that you think have, have edified you the most, um, that could help pastors or just, just lay people to, to think better about their faith. One thing that I would say is reading good Christian biographies and, and really understanding that, um, 
there is a history of the church that's preceded us. And there's, it is the height of ignorance for and arrogance, I would say too, for us to act like that doesn't matter. So constantly always reading, I would say either a biography or some type of historical theology book and just thinking through and seeing how different men, um, what drove them to these conclusions and, and from different traditions, you know, I, I love Baptist history, but not just reading Baptist, but, but Presbyterian, Anglicans, uh, others, uh, independent congregationalists, uh, and, and just seeing how they formulated their theological positions and what drove them and understanding that theology does not happen uh, in a vacuum. I, I think, you know, history does affect. And, and I think in many ways, what I grew up in is there's definitely a lot of historical reasons why. Now, the rise of revivalism, for example, uh, and I would even go a step further, and I would say a lot of what the layout of the land in the South, uh, theologically and religiously, is is the product of what happened after the Civil War. Pre-Civil War, most Baptists and their pastors and so forth didn't have that, what I would say, an anti-theological education attitude. Um, that arises a lot more after the war, hmm. um, but I don't want to get off on another, you know, rabbit trail, but, but I think that would be one thing. And also then, you know, I, I would say, you know, using things like confessions and creeds, uh, yeah. definitely reading these, these systematic layouts of what we believe and, and why we believe that with the scripture references and then seeing how catechisms then, you know, uh, use use the confessions and use the creeds to teach. I can't tell you how many times I have heard it directly or indirectly um, that us using creeds and confessions and catechisms is Catholic. And I don't mean universal there with a lower KC, but Roman Catholic, because in my context, that's just something that Roman Catholicism does. They're, they do catechism. And so many people have no idea about the historical use of catechisms in Baptist life. So I would say the biographies, historical theologies, and, and creeds and confessions, uh, those are great tools to use to see that what we believe, the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints that we're supposed to contend for uh, is not new to us, that we're in a long train here, uh, and we're at the back right now, and we need to know what's happened before us. Well, Jake, I think this has all been super helpful and edifying. Um, I think we, I, at least I could probably sit here for another hour or two, uh, listening yeah, to your own testimony and the different details that went into it. Uh, I think it's all fascinating and I am 100% sure our listeners have benefited from it and been encouraged by it. Uh, seeing the, the God's grace, um, to even some of the areas that may seem like they, uh, are completely unable to be penetrated by God's grace. And yet he, saves his own uh, through no matter no matter what there is. So we're thankful uh, for your testimony and for your advice here on reading good Christian biographies using confessions and catechisms. I think Brandon and I both are very much on board with those things. I know Brandon reads biographies more than I do. I probably should do more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's what I think he's been reading John Newton at some point. Oh, I love there. me some John Newton. Yeah. Uh, but we uh, want to say uh, we're going to be getting ready for a second episode with you because you've got so much excellent stuff to share with us and we're excited about that.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.